Pacifica Bible Church. It's great to have all of you here. And okay, this is a really, 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 really good week that you're here um, because we are starting a series that I'm incredibly excited about. We were talking about this series last year when we were looking into uh, just what, what we were going to be teaching through as a staff, as a, as a team. And this, this thing, this thing that we're, that's called a Mago Day is something that some of you probably have heard about, um, but we haven't really studied as a church, this is what A.W. Tozer calls one of the most important doctrines, um, one of the most magnanimous and most life-giving doctrines that he came across. And this is something that is important to us. Now, Imago Dei or Imago Dei is something that is a, is a goofy Latin word, but let's just say it all together. On the count of three, so we're going to say Imago Dei, okay? One, two, three. Okay, you're awesome at Latin. Because so, Latin means this. Imago Dei means image of God. And, and it's referencing Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, when God says that he created us, humanity, in his image, in the Imago Dei. And that was a big deal, especially in the ancient world, because the, there was lots of images of God. This is ripped off of Raiders of the Lost Ark, but let's just take it for, as an example. Everybody who had a God, everyone who developed a religion, had to have something that they could look at that they could not only look at, but get some kind of peace from. And so if you had a house, you wanted to know that your house was protected by your God. So you put it up on the wall. If you were a villager, you would want to make sure that everyone knew who protected this village. And if you were a stranger, let's say that like we're in ancient Manuka and, and travelers from, from the west, from Morris, have come to Manuka, they would come to the city gates of the nook and they would see something up on, on, the, on the wall or on, on the, the gatepost, some idol that would declare to the Mauritians, welcome to the nook. But this is our God. This is the God that we worship. This is the God we sacrifice to. He's the one who protects us. This is our God, which is interesting because as you're going through the Old Testament, the God we worship, the one true God, has a big issue with this. Not just with the idea of someone putting up some false God that they carved in their backyard on a fence post and getting some type of peace out of like, you know, the craftsmanship that they had. He also took issue with anyone trying to carve an image of him. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, you hear it said there should be no graven or, or carved images of the one true God. Why? Why not? Because he already had his image already crafted into us. We, humanity, we are created in the image of God. We are the image bearers. And so wherever, and this is the cool thing, it's not just someone that you could put on the side of town as the image bearer of the one true God. God's strategy and genius in this is this. Everywhere that humanity is, the proclamation of where his territory lies, where his protection lies, where his influence lies is already gone out. Everywhere you are or I am or any other individual, whether a believer or not, you have evidence of God's image there. Dignity, worth, value, regardless of who they are. And it's amazing. And, and the cool thing is this, is that as followers of this one true God, we not only recognize the Imago Dei in us, the image of God in us, but we see that that's not just an end of a sentence. That if we're creating the image of God, he's doing something inside of us and building into us a reality that is significant. 
Now, if you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of Colossians. We are going to be looking at Genesis chapter 1, but I'll have it up on the screen. Colossians, I want you to look at it in your own Bibles, or if you're following um, on the NBC app, uh, you can go ahead and just look at your notes there, and it's got Colossians 3, so you can see the words for yourself. But, th- but this, these two passages are going to be our text today as we introduce, we take our first initial steps into this concept, this reality that we see stemming out of Genesis, and and the reality that we see proclaimed even into 2017. And we're going to be looking at the implications of the Imago Dei. And here's the first one. Uh, The first implications for us is this, that we are like a shadow. We are like a shadow. In Genesis chapter 1, we have this amazing word that God uses in that passage. When Moses wrote it, he uses this word, selim. Everyone say, selim? Selim. And selim means shadow or shade. And, and it's this idea that if you have a light source and you have something that, some type of object or person, that person is going to cast a shadow. And that shadow or shade is a selim. It's, 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 it's the image of, of the original. It's not the original, but it's an image of the original. And, and, so, and so this is something that we see important to understand as we get into this passage of Genesis chapter 1 and following. Listen to it. Then God said, let us make mankind in our what? Image. In the cell, in the, in the, in the, let's make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and all over all the creatures that move along the ground. And in this passage, we see God is speaking of, of, the, of that, that that three-in-oneness that is God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let us make mankind in our image, in the, in the, that they will be the image of us. He goes on, so God created mankind in his own image, in his own shadow. The image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. Now, at first blush, um, this should be a little offensive. I mean, if you think of yourself with a little bit of dignity, I'm a shadow. That's the good news today. But think about that. Like if, if, if this, is, this is just a shadow of me, so it's like worthless. It, it doesn't weigh anything. It can't do anything. It, you know, and on top of it, like I raise my right hand and it raises its left. It's weird. But here's the thing. On top of that, on top of that, this is just a shadow of me. But if we're created in the image of God, that means some serious stuff for us. Number one, it means our, my value is, is dictated by that reality. I have a measurable value, and unav- I, have, I have a measurable value just as is, as, at default. I am immeasurably valuable, not because I'm successful, not because of how much money I have, not because of my relational status, not because of how many children I have or don't have, not because of, of what I own, not because of what people said about me in high school, what people say about me on my block today, not because of any promotion, not because of any of that. I have value, immeasurable value, because the divine did this. He made me, and he made you. I mean, can you imagine if this world understood that their value did not come from their relational status, or what people say about them in, in, at high school, or how much they own, or how much, how much value they have, net worth? but their value was intrinsically, inherently theirs because they are created in the selim of God, the image of God, that he knit them together uniquely in their mother's womb. 
But not only am I immeasurably valuable, but I'm also unavoidably finite. I am the shadow, which tells me I'm not the source. I may be created in the image of God, but I am not God. I am accountable to God. He is not accountable to me. And that puts me in a perspective of humility to realize as much as I think I could be valuable because of this image of God, that should also dictate a massive humility to realize I have a relationship to him as my master and my creator that I would not have otherwise. But not just me. This also speaks into the value of everybody else. Others' value is also something that I can recognize. So that jerk that cut me off in traffic, going down 80, the guy who cut me off, you know the guy. That guy is not just a jerk who cut me off. Guess what? He is an image bearer of God. That, that person in my family that I absolutely just, just drive me bananas and I just, ugh, I can't stand that person. Guess what? That's not just an annoying person who just keeps on shooting themselves in the foot with the decisions that they make. They are, in fact, immeasurably valuable to God. Why? Because they're perfect? Mm-mm, they ain't. But they are immeasurably valuable to him because they are created in his image. No matter who you interact with, no matter how dehumanizing you can be as we could be when we're putting people down, we need to recognize that these people that we are dehumanizing are created in God's image. And that means that they are immeasurably valuable regardless, regardless of what they do. But it also helps us remember that they too are finite, which means that there's some of these people that we make gods in our life. It's your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your husband, your wife, maybe the opinion of a teacher or a boss, the opinions of others, we can actually elevate the shadow and pretend as if that is the loudest and most important word in my life, and it is not. God's perspective is, this person, as immeasurably valuable as they are, they are, in fact, finite. Finally, the important thing for us to understand about us being shadow is that the status, our status as image bearers, is due to far more than our intellectual capacity or ability to choose. Some people have thought, okay, so what, what, what's the significant thing about us being created in the image of God? And we could say, well, I, I personally have more ability, more intellectual capacity than my dog bear. And so clearly God has set me aside from the rest of the animal kingdom because I can actually drive a truck and he hasn't learned that yet. No. Some people have said, well, because, because honestly, well, what, what happens if, you know, what happens to the people that are born without that intellectual capacity? Are they created in the image of God, or is it just us who can think straight? Well, maybe, maybe it's our ability to, to, you know, emotionally interact, and, and, and we, we can love, and that's, that's unique to us, and, and we can make choices, and et cetera. Well, great, but what about the person in the coma? Are they no longer valuable? Are they no longer created in the image of God? No. And this is the thing that, that is, that's the weirdest thing about the image of God. Because when we think about humanity, what makes us so special? It, even when we think about Satan and the angels, those, those guys have got the intellectual capacity to choose. They have the intellectual capacity to respond to God positively or negatively. So they clearly have that which we have. So what makes humanity so special to God? I don't know. But it, it's like answering, and we've talked about this before, it's like a husband trying to answer the question of a wife who says, why do you love me? 
Any answer you give to that question is a trap. <laughs> if you say, well, I love you because you're so beautiful. So you're saying like, I don't know, a car accident happens and I'm no longer beautiful. Um, or something mars my face. Like, what if the lawnmower hits my face? Are you no longer going to love me? <laughs> Will you cease loving me at... No, 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 no. I mean, um, it's your insides, your mind, your in, the fact that you're so, you're so smart. That's why I love you. Oh, so if I stop being so smart, you would just find someone smarter than me. Is that it? The reality is there's no right answer to that question. Except, except... I love you because I love you. I choose to love you. I love you because I love you. And that, in a small way, reflects the fact that the Heavenly Father loves us. Why? Because we have more high, higher intellectual capacity. He loves us because we are his image bearers. Maybe a better way of putting it is this. What qualifies us as image bearer is simply that God loves humanity in a unique way that is distinct from every other aspect of his creation. And we don't know why. We don't know why he's chosen it that way, but it's amazing that he has. There is a reason why you are, your life is more valuable than plant life or animal life. Not that they're not valuable, not that they're not created by God and should be protected, but there's something significant about humanity. And what it is, is the fact that we were created in his image. But something happened to the image of God. In Genesis 3, just two chapters later, we recognize that the image of God is marred by man's rebellion. We see that, that Adam makes the choice, instead of letting his decisions be dictated to the, by the fact that he's created in God's image, he was going to basically create God in his own image, and he was just going to pretend as if God is preoccupied enough or ignorant enough that it really doesn't matter that he would make this rebellious decision. And if that sounds familiar, it's because we're still doing that. And then in that, in that moment of shame, of recognizing, like there's this newfound knowledge that comes into his mind, and he feels ashamed of his decisions. And he, instead of responding and going right to God, he, he, he sows fig leaves to try to cover up his nakedness, which I don't, I don't get that. I would have chosen a different plant, but he, he chose fig leaves. And I always just have this weird thought in my head of like this fig Newton kilt or something, you know? <laughs> it makes no sense to me. But Adam does that. And Adam, in that situation, Adam shields himself from the consequences of his sin and distances himself from his creator. And if that sounds familiar, it's because you and I are still doing that as well. Now from Genesis 3 on, you don't hear a whole lot about the Imago Dei in the Old Testament. A little bit here and there. But the image of God is something that people kind of take for granted and take it as a given. Up until about 500 BC, around the second temple period, all of a sudden rabbis started to resurface that lingo and start talking about what makes us so special. What is it that we are created in the image of God? What is that? Is it our thinking capacity? Is it our ability to love? What is it? And some rabbis actually got to a point of saying, I think that part of it is that maybe it's like we're, we're created like a replica of God. But they stopped that line of thinking because it, it kind of was offensive to think of the great spirit God and the, the physical humanity man. God, who is spirit, is not flesh. And yet, little did they know that shortly thereafter, just 500 years later, what they would see is that the one who would restore this brokenness in humanity was, in fact, the Imago Dei. Go ahead and hit the lights, Lewis. Jesus 
came as the restorer of the lost humanity, the broken Imago Dei. He came to do something that was so significant in restoring us that it would do something initially in our soul and would eventually happen in our physical bodies. That Jesus' Imago Dei restoration project was God actually doing what those early rabbis had a hard time believing. God became man. God became flesh. And he lived a perfect life and he died a sinner's death, your death and my death, for our sins. He did that. And he did that to undo what Adam did. The old man is dead in Adam. And so as followers of Jesus, we can die to the old self and we can actually walk new steps of new life and a new humanity. The new image of God is found only in this Jesus. And the cool thing about that is we see Paul, who's the, who's the skeptic who becomes this fascinated and with Jesus to the point of, uh, of wanting to subdue Jesus' followers and everything that Jesus is doing until he has an interaction with Christ who met him. And he surrenders his life to him and, and he, he becomes this Christian who's following him. And then he keeps on talking about this image of God that Jesus is restoring. The fact that Jesus' death led to our life and so we can die to our old self and live for him. And we see that in Colossians chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there because it's in Colossians chapter 3 that we see that we are not only just like a shadow, but we're also like one wearing better clothes. Take a look at what he says here in verse 5. He says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life that you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Okay, hold on just for a second there. Paul is doing this amazing thing where he's not just giving this laundry list of do's and don'ts. He's identifying what naturally happens from us living out the old man of Adam, the broken, marred image of God who has put ourselves on the throne. We still bear the image of God, we still have intrinsic value, regardless of our decisions, but our reflection of God has been marred. And, and, and Paul is saying, this is, this is intoxicating your life. You're poison. This is death. So, so get rid of it. Instead, you could take off that, 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 that Fig Newton kilt that you used to, to shield yourself from God. There's something better for you to put on, and it's what Christ can afford to you. He says this, in verse 11, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. This is for everyone. I don't care your backdrop. I don't care your national origin. I don't care what tribe you're from. This is for you. Verse 12, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. Right? When we get into this next list, He's just talked about the things to ditch, the old wardrobe that needs to be pitched. And he's saying, now put on these things. And as I'm reading this, ask yourself, is this not what every human being wants? When you think of what a good human is, even if, if someone is not a believer, what they would define as a good human, think about these qualities that Paul is identifying only come from God, only come through Christ. 
He says this, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with these, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. Uh, forgive, uh, uh, forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. The, the very things that, that all of us are longing for in a culture and a civilization, Paul is saying that is what, that is the new humanity that, that is defined by and flows from not just a good upbringing or a good culture, but that actually comes from the reality that Jesus has given us. I, I just wrote this down in a response to that. Paul uses Genesis 3 imagery in reverse. So instead of Adam in rebellion clothing himself to shield himself from his sin and from God, he does this. Instead of clothes crafted to distance ourselves from the consequences of our sin and proximity to God, we are authentically re-identified with Jesus, the image of God. We are putting on his qualities and allowing him to transform us from the inside out. Which brings me to this, I want to show you this amazing jacket, okay? Um, but I can't because it's, it's in a landfill somewhere in California. But I want you to think about this, okay? This was from when I was in third grade. Just imagine just this phenomenally beautiful chrome jacket, like chrome, like I'm talking mere reflective, terrible, breathable, but awesome jacket. Um, I don't know about you, but my parents only bought clothes at the beginning of the school year. And they told me these shoes are making it till June, okay? Um, and that was tough, but we did that. And so we only got clothes at the, at the beginning of the school year. But, um, but my mom thought that I needed a jacket. And in California, we didn't own a whole lot of jackets. We certainly didn't own any coats. Um, but she thought, you know, every once in a while it does get chilly in Southern California. It gets pretty Arctic, like 64. So we need to pull out a jacket here and there. And so Errol needs a jacket. But she wasn't going to buy me an expensive jacket that I, you know, would only wear one or tw once or twice during the school year. So she goes to the thrift store and she buys this chrome jacket. I mean, honestly, when I first saw it, I, I looked at it and I thought, I, I'm like, I'm going to be an astronaut. This is, like, this is like bleeding space camp right here. I mean, it, was, it was awesome. And I put it on, and I grabbed my, uh, we had a, a, a motorcycle helmet that our neighbors let us borrow, and I put on that helmet and zipped up the jacket, and instantly I was like, I'm going through my backyard. I'm fast, I'm looking up NASA facts. I'm learning about the solar system. I'm realizing how expensive space camp is, and I'll never, ever go, and I'm just, but I'm loving it. And this thing, I zip this up and I am now, I am an astronaut. We get like fridge boxes and we put them on the end of a coffee table and we get inside and then we like tip it over so it hits the ground and we pretend like we crash landed on Mars. It was, this was amazing. It changed everything. In third grade, I had the worst teacher I ever had in school, Mrs. Dallas. And she, I don't think any of you know her, so I'm going to tell, say the name, Mrs. Dallas. If you're watching Mrs. Dallas, it's true. You, okay, so, it, but Mrs. Dallas was, she was so mean. Things that Mrs. Dallas said I'm still recovering from, okay? But Mrs. Dallas, Mrs. Dallas had an amazing thing on Fridays, and it was show and tell every Friday. And I knew exactly what I was going to show and tell. Me in that jacket. And I can't, got her up in front of the class, and I, I zip it up, and I'm like, this, this jacket. I, I'm like an astronaut in this jacket, and kids are like, 
And I, I didn't even care because it, was, it so changed everything. And I, I, it, was, it was one of those things where you're not supposed to have a reoccurring show and tell item. You're supposed to have different things. I didn't care. That, this one was every other week because I needed to show them. Now, this is, this is the thing that we need to understand. That changed everything inside. The way I looked at myself, my, my excitement, my vision for everything. And it was a stupid thrift store jacket. Paul is saying this. We are walking, we are born into junk that we have put on that distances us from God. Jesus says, I have come to give you life and have it to the full. And so you can actually take off these things that are, that are shielding you from the consequences of your sin and you can be honest. You can have a re- relationship with me that is actually putting on something better. You have a better wardrobe, a better set of clothes that helps you see yourself in a different light. You're regaining and re-understanding the image of God I created you for, but sin has broken. I am restoring in you the Imago Dei that God intended for you. And this is the thing. Paul is fixed on the fact this is going to be our current reality, a progressive reality we're experiencing now. And one day it'll be in fullness. And it won't just be spiritual, it'll be physical as well. One day, this body is going to break down and die. All of our bodies in here are. That's going to happen. If you're in Christ, the moment that you surrendered your life to Jesus and you received his forgiveness, he started something inside of you that gives you the opportunity to put on these realities that he has given you, which changes everything inside, changes it all. You have been given that. And so the renewal process starts now internally. And one day, all of you, physical and spiritual, will be restored completely. Now, if any of you, in reading that list, and you're seeing all those things of things that he's saying to put off, like, you know, the filthy language and the the rage and anger, and to put on humility and gentleness and patience and love, if you're just like, that sounds awesome, it's easy to be patient with people who are patient. It's hard to be patient with people who are jerks. It's easy to be kind to people who are kind to me, but it's hard to be kind to people who aren't. This is too tall. I can't do this. And if you're saying, I can't do this, you are correct. You cannot do this. But that's, that's the amazing thing about this passage because Paul uses something here. He uses, um, when he's talking about putting on these qualities and taking them off, taking them off the old qualities, he's using a present middle passive participle. And that's just a fancy way of saying that there's someone else at work here. You are not, even though we have this decision, Paul's clear about putting on something, you do have a decision. At the same time, simultaneously, your ability to be renewed is afforded to you not by your decision-making, not by your super spirituality or your upbringing. It's because God has given you the grace to actually step into this and to put on love and patience and gentleness. You are not alone. You are not alone. These things that, that God is calling you into, he has given you the ability to step into. He is renewing the image of God in you. Not only do we see a better set of clothing, do we see ourselves as a shadow, but we also are able to see ourselves like a mirror. Because this, this, this thing that he's doing in us is not simply, it's not simply for us just to absorb and just be a changed person internally. This thing that Jesus is doing is actually, it's, it's actually something that is causing a reflection. Uh, every service I've blinded like people. So I, <laughs> at the end of last service, someone's like, Da-da, the window needs some Windex. The mirror needs some Windex. I'm like, yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. 
But this is kind of what we are, right? God has created us to be reflectors, not simply absorbers. We're not simply transformed. We're transformed to reflect. And honestly, we, we are a poor reflection a lot of the time. We are a, a marred or dirty reflection. But again, that's why this, this renewal is progressive. And, and it reminds us that his value is not simply for us to be changed, but for us to change and to see that impact everyone around us. Tim Keller put it this way. While the image of God remains after the fall, it is certainly marred and defaced. As we are redeemed, what will we look like when the process is completed? As God restores us, our unique design in the image of God will shine even more brightly and our gifts will reach their full potential. We will also look like Christ. The Bible reminds us that we are being conformed to the image of his son. Jesus is the perfect representative of the image of God and we are being made like him. Jesus could have died on the cross, rose again, and said, okay, I'm just planting myself. Everyone, I want you to listen to me. I'm the, I am the bearer of the good news. I'm going to stay on earth, and I'm just going to set up this massive church, and everyone's going to come and listen to me talk. But he doesn't. In the beginning of Acts, he says, I'm going to go, and I'm going to be with the Father, but my spirit will be given you, and you're going to receive power from that to actually be my witnesses. You're going to be the ones who are proclaiming my word so that when the world sees you, they're going to see a reflection of me. When the world hears you, they're going to hear a reflection of me. And I'm going to give you the power to do this. And, and as much as you may think, I am not a religious person or, or you know, people who, who should be, you know, talking for God should, should be more eloquent or more biblically understood. And again, I, we should constantly be growing in our, in our faith and growing in our knowledge of scripture, but do not disqualify yourself from the very thing that God has given you at the point you became a Christian, which is to be a reflection in word and deed. That's not legalism. That's liberation because we get a chance to actually step in and God calls us into being a proclaimer of that reality. Which, of course, brings us to Green Day. Green Day is an old, 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 a band way too old to still be punk rocking. But they are. Lead singer uh, Billy Joe Armstrong is 45. And it's hard to be a punk rocker at 45, but he's, he's doing it. Um, and regardless of what you think of their music, it, they've done something that, that a lot of other artists have done. I think after you tour for a long time and you've sung your songs over and over and over again, you start to get to a point where... You, you want to, you, you see everyone in the crowd singing. And so whether it's Beyonce or it's Bruce Springsteen, you see what they, they're singing and then they see people singing their song and what do they do? They lean out and all of a sudden everyone in the audience sees how talented the person on stage is compared to this dude in the front row. But Billy Joe Armstrong takes it one step further he actually started to invite on some of like the songs off of uh, like Dookie or something, like songs back off those albums in 94, he invites people on stage that he can tell knows the, know the song. And, they, and these awkward high schoolers start to sing the song as the band is playing behind them. And all of a sudden they're seeing thousands of people and they're singing the words. Words that have been, were written decades ago that are now just being like re-sung in front of this huge crowd. But then all of a sudden, Billy, Billy Joe Armstrong did something else. He didn't just like see this guy sing and like, oh, that was really cool that he had a chance to sing. 
He was so impressed and he loved it so much that he ended up giving the guy his guitar. He gave him his guitar, which just blew the guy away. And something happened in Billy Joe Armstrong. All of a sudden, he started doing this at every show. But he stopped just merely giving someone a guitar. He would bring someone on stage and he would actually start to teach them how to play the song that they were singing. And he would do it again. And he would do it again with people far too young to be at a Green Day concert. <laughs> but here's the thing. How much do you want to bet that that kid with that guitar of Billy Joe Armstrong who had a chance to come on stage and sing those lyrics that he wrote, goes back home and still is playing that guitar, still is singing those words, still trying to be like Billy Joe Armstrong. I would say the probability is incredibly high. Why? Because as John Piper said, images are created to image. We are created not just as people, but as people who are intended to reflect something, someone that we're trying to be like, someone we're trying to emulate. And Jesus said, that is ultimately found in me. We are created in the image of God. Ravi Zacharias um, talks about this part in the Bible where Jesus is um, confronted by someone who's trying to trap him. And, and he traps him by, by asking not only a financial question, but a legal question regarding taxes. Now, how many of you just love tax season? Okay. I don't know what's wrong with you people, but it's, it's, yeah. Okay, so it'd be great if the Bible said, you know what, love Jesus and just don't pay taxes. And we'd say, yeah, booyah. April 15th is Independence Day for us because we don't have to pay it because Jesus said we didn't. But this guy goes up to Jesus and he says, so uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar? This terrible pagan dude who thinks that he's God, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus knows that he's in the trap. He, doesn't, he knows that if he says yes or no, Either way, someone's going to be offended and, and, and troubled by it. And he, he simply turns to the guy and he says, Who sh should we pay taxes to Caesar? Do you got a coin? The guy's like, yeah, got two. Here's one. Jesus takes that coin and he says, Whose image is on the coin? The guy's like, Caesar's. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar's. And give to God what belongs to God. Now we know that this guy was just trying to trap Jesus and wasn't authentically trying to find out an answer to his question because he doesn't follow up his question with another question. He just walks away. If he was actually legitimately trying to find out information from Jesus, he would have followed up that question with this question. After Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God, he would have said, well, what belongs to God? To which Jesus would have responded, whose image is on you. God has put his image on each one of us. We belong to him. And the sooner we realize that, and the sooner we realize that the only restoration work for that image in us, that marred image, is Jesus' sacrifice and his work to restore us, the sooner that we'll actually realize that we have the ability to reflect this to a world that's waiting and watching, the transformation that's taken place in us that is restoring the image that God has crafted in us to live out and flesh out. And that is the purpose of humanity, for his glory. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. Lord Jesus, each one of us in this room 
As we've already noted, we, we, we thank you for the fact that we, are, we have immeasurable worth and value regardless of any of our ups or downs. We have incredible value to you. And Lord, we are humbled by our, our finitude, by the fact that we are finite. Lord, I pray that you give each one of us the humility to understand that we have a need for you, that you are our master, that you are our Lord. You're not simply an application to our life that we can just uh, walk in and walk out of, but that you want all of us. We belong to you, but that we also recognize, God, that the worth and value that we have reminds us that we're not simply enslaved to a cruel master, but we are following a loving God who loves us. Lord, I pray that you give each one of us confidence, passion, humility, and dignity stemming not from anything we do, but from you. And as we go through this series, Lord, I pray that you help impact every single one of us in unique ways that will impact the world around us for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. See you guys next week.